Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Hello, hello. I'm Steve Abramowitz, and this is the Mill Creek View podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, Kelly Jackson. Welcome to our People in the News, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today, we are talking with Kelly Jackson. Kelly is a California refugee to Tennessee, Christ follower, wife, and mom of three amazing teenagers. She has a BA in Com from Point Loma Nazarene University and has a background in law enforcement and human resources. Since the summer of 2020, she has spent any and all free time in the trenches with local grassroots organizations including Moms for Liberty, Williamson County, and Tennessee Stands as a core member. Outspoken advocate for parents' rights, medical freedom, and individual liberty, Kelly writes for and can be reached at kelly at tennesseeconservativenews.com. Hello, Kelly. How are you today, ma'am? I'm good, Steve. How are you today? I'm good. You survived uh, Snowmageddon 2024. Snowpocalypse. Barely. Yes, <laughs> we survived. We survived. We uh, with three teenagers in the house. The main issue was keeping enough food so that we didn't all starve. That's right. Yeah, the snow <laughs> is wonderful, but the ice, the ice is not so great. Ice, ice, not, baby. Not fun. Boy. No, no. And <laughs> this year we have new drivers, so that was the other issue we didn't deal with last year. We have new drivers in our house, so that was a little bit unnerving but we got yeah there. they don't sell snow tires and chains here like they do uh, back mm -mm. home in washington where steve is all right well you you didn't have to rush over here and slip and fall into the ice but just yesterday you had a meeting with uh, the attorney general of tennessee scarmetti and his office yes. um are you doing a profile on him for ttc uh yes uh his he, he his people his press guy um contacted me and asked if I would be interested in interviewing him. And absolutely 100% uh, was completely honored to be to be asked. I had met him once briefly before, but didn't really have an opportunity to really get into any any issues with any sort of substance. So it was really great to be able to sort of have him all to myself and just ask him some questions that I know are on the minds of our readers. No, that's great. I mean, you're not a journalism last 30, 40 year type of person or or a Phil Williams who has access to everybody. Yeah. They, It's nice that they yeah. would actually invite you in and not just be part of a presser, but to actually sit down one on one. And that's yeah. uh, kudos to you for getting those accolades. And he's a busy guy. So I'm glad he was willing to do that. Yeah. Um, he's yeah. got a lot of joint lawsuits against the Biden administration. A lot of attorney generals do, but he has been just about on everyone that I could see um joining and sometimes leading these other states um yeah. any any that he was particularly excited about getting close to some kind of resolution this month or next or soon the two that we discussed that the the one in particular which was one that he had engaged in against essentially the federal government with regard to um appliance efficiency standards with the epa and how they are putting these regulations onto manufacturers, which then produce a product that is less than substandard. I mean, it doesn't even do what essentially it is. For, in this lawsuit, they were particularly dis, uh, talking about dishwashers. They're, you know, they want them to be water and energy efficient, and at the same time, 
they they really aren't very efficient and they don't do the job that you purchased them for. So his point was that, you know, we're all Tennesseans are consumers just like he is. He says, I, if I buy a product, I want it to do exactly what it says it's going to do. And the problem is we have these unelected bureaucrats in the in these um, uh, agencies, agencies that are dictating the standards for these manufacturers versus allowing the manufacturers to create products that they know will be useful and worth the money that they're asking us to pay. So yeah. he Ever said since the one time they got it right with seatbelts, they've been all over this between light bulbs <laughs> yeah. and toilets yeah. that you have to flush twice yeah. instead of once. So it's one and a half yes. times the amount of water you need to use or Steve's yes. home state, they are getting rid of all new construction oh. cannot have natural gas. So people I are know. freezing to death right now and it's going to get worse. I mean, makes uh, me really glad that we don't live in Washington state anymore or Oregon because yeah. our, when we had that cold snap last year, um, my gas stove, two burners on my gas stove kept my entire downstairs toasty. So, yeah, yeah. but he said he was successful. Well, more in importantly, that... we have an eight attorney general who would actually fight for that as opposed yes. to one that would actually motivate yeah. the rest of the legislator to vote with him. So, yeah, yes. we're, we're happy yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he said he he won that and essentially he will be able to impose um, his will in the state of Tennessee. And he, he said he's determined to use that um, ability. Um, That's great. The the other lawsuit that he discussed was his um, lawsuit that he it has filed against Meta or Facebook and the products that essentially Meta and Facebook designed specifically geared toward kids. And then it's not only they geared toward kids, but then they are specifically harmful to kids. And um, what it made me think of is all of those lawsuits back in the 70s with uh, the tobacco companies. You're designing a product that is intended to addict people to your product. It's sort of the same with these lawsuits with the with with the big tech. So he's still in the middle of those, but that's his intent is it's it's essentially it's reckless to create a product that you that you create for kids that we know to be harmful for kids. So it gives that, it gives that dopamine hit. Um, did he yes. give you any, um, not maybe not statistics, but did he show you some of the discovery that he's going through to prove that Meta and TikTok and Facebook and all the rest are actually um, conspiring we, to do this? We weren't able to get into the meat that far. Um, he probably, because he's in the middle of litigation, there's only so much that he can discuss with me, but, um, he wanted to let me know that that is one of their endeavors and that they are, I mean, they are endeavoring to protect kids in Tennessee. So, okay. you know, uh, again, part of that, part of that is proving that it is addictive, right? And that's yes, the point. Yes. So I'm sure he's got, okay. yeah, I'm sure he's got all that data. Uh, we, then we discussed, um, issues about illegal immigration and all of that, that that entails and, he indicated that whenever he has these conference calls with all of the other AGs across the country, that seems to be the paramount issue for all of the constituents in every single state. It's like, when is this, how and when are we going to be able to stop this unmitigated flow of illegal immigrants into our country? And what can we do to um, essentially, what, what, what can be done to hold our federal government accountable for the damages and the things that happen in our states because of the fact that they will not um, 
enforce the the immigration laws at the border. And it's just this ongoing issue in every state. It's different. You know, did he take an intrastate take on that or was he talking more nationally, like to help Texas and Arizona or how did the conversation go? Was it specifically Tennessee or was it? Well, it was because the northern border has a problem, too, which yes. you don't border with, but they end up here. Right. Right. It was both. It was how can we work together as how can they work together as red states in a in a in a um, a united front, um, but at the same time deal with the individual issues that are occurring here in our own state of Tennessee due to this flow of immigrants that are illegal immigrants that are coming in and committing crimes in our state and causing trouble, um, things that should never even have happened because they never should, you know, be here. But he discussed um, these clandestine drop-offs in the middle of some of the most rural parts of the state in the middle of the night. You know, I mean, these are things that he's, they're just happening. The federal government is just send, sending these people here and dropping them off with absolutely no warning whatsoever. So it's it's a it's a challenging problem for our state to know how to address it when we don't know where they're going to land. We don't know how they're going to land. And then, of course, there's, you know, the humanitarian side of that where you do have some people who have it there could most of these are, you know, men, young men by themselves. But you will have the women, the children. These people don't speak English. They don't know where they are. They don't know how to ask for assistance. So there's the humanitarian side of it too. And we're all expected here in the state of Tennessee to utilize our resources to care for these people when it wasn't something that we intended to do or even or asked for or expected. And there's yeah. just and there's it's freezing no outside, recourse. right? So you yes. drop them off in a little town near a cornfield, and yes. they freeze to death. So that's not a good yes. idea. But at some no. point, they do have to get into the system, whether it be you know the obvious ones, a driver's license or food stamps or something. They have to have some sort of connection to the system. Isn't there an opportunity for Tennessee law enforcement or uh, illegal immigration services to? or I guess you'd say immigration and naturalization services to finally find them even after they've been dropped off in the middle of the night and then deal with it? Or is it just a black hole? You never know. What well, you that's, we, we're obligated based on who's in the White House, essentially. They established the policy. So we are expected as a state to take their lead, to follow their lead. And essentially all we are at being required to do is to accommodate them and and deal with them as they enter the system. So, you know, we can't like when Trump was president, um, that was why you did see a lot of law enforcement having the ability to go and find these people actively seek for these people and uh, essentially round them up and initiate deportation. But because we have the Biden administration in the White House and they have essentially signaled to our states, hey, we are the federal government. We set the tone for what, how we're going. We, we handle immigration policy. So therefore you're gonna follow our lead. And what we're saying is you're just gonna have to deal with this. You're yeah, going to have the, to the, the nullification laws are so important and that you end up seeing yes. kids 
and people in hotels in New York City or gymnasiums yeah. in Chicago, like just overflowing with any structure yeah. that they can possibly do to get them out yeah. of the cold. Okay. Yeah. Well, I want to talk more about immigration, but we'll get it into your headlines soon. Um, how about the Covenant shooter's uh, prescription drugs or who was her therapist and what she was being brainwashed about or maybe who hurt her growing up at the school or anything that's a clue as to motive uh, to end up killing those nine-year-olds besides the leaked notebook pages, anything being made public as he promised on this show when it happened? No, no. So far as I know, nothing else has been released to the public for public consumption. Um, there are no more. Mm -mm. No, that wasn't something we got into. We got into uh, some OSHA stuff with the OSHA. Some There are going to be some rule changes from the Biden administration. OSHA was utilized, as we know, to uh, implement COVID mandates with masks and vaccines on businesses. And what they're trying to, it seems that they're trying to do is make changes for the makeup of these inspection teams. So where they used to be pretty much confined to people who um, were, were subject matter experts with regard to building standards or whatever safety is why OSHA would come and inspect your business. They've included language that would allow for a third party contractor to essentially come in and do that job instead of OSHA. And the fear then is, is who are these third party contractors? Are these, for example, could you get someone from an atheist organization that could be part of these inspection teams to come in and inspect your, your Christian church? You know what is what is that going to look like? So we have we had I had some questions about that, and he he said he had um, that was on his radar, but he needed to do uh, a little bit more study with regard to that. But it just seems like every time we turn around, something is popping up somewhere, yeah. and I I know he must feel like he's playing whack a mole like all the time. Yeah, he is that thin line that. between uh, states' rights and federal encroachment on our states' rights. Um, when you did you get the and the last question about him personally, but did you get the impression like okay, I know there's about 23 states that consistently go in on these cases to try to say no, Meta can't do this and no, uh, OSHA can't do that. Did you find him maybe to be one of two or three or five of the leaders of that group or just one of the pack? Like, is he actually looking at the laws coming out of D.C. and saying, yep, call everybody, let's get them going, I'm a leader? Or is he just waiting? He he didn't, in our discussion, there was really not an indication, but based on headlines from what I've seen, he seems to be sort of more of one of the leaders that is trying to initiate some of these lawsuits that will move the needle in one direction in a positive direction for our state and sort of then make a you know an aggregated push with all of the uh red state ags you know if we can all i mean many hands make light work and this is not light work to begin with but if they can just have an aggregated uh push in one direction and then in our state sort of just deal with the issues in independently that just pertain to Tennessee. So well, I also have to diversify the costs like in Washington state when attorney general Ferguson, who's now running for governor, he sued Trump, I think 40 times that was all out of Washington taxpayers pocket where he didn't have 
22 more states behind him to say, yes, let's sue the president of the United States for something that we know is going to be overturned and waste a lot of money. He wasted Washington's money, whereas here, mm -hmm. Tennessee would have to fight alone to deal with you know illegal immigration yeah. as opposed to disperse that. So that's a good thing. Um, yeah. Okay, so one of your headlines, it's related. You wrote this. Um, ACLU has filed a federal lawsuit against the district attorney general, not the attorney general, the district attorney for the fifth judicial district for sending out a letter informing Blunt County, which is way south, uh, law enforcement agencies and city officials, as well as the organizer of Blunt Pride, that a law passed this past session in the Tennessee General Assembly will be enforced should there be evidence of a violation. Okay, we've been through Pride all last year between yeah, not letting it happen and them not letting them march and not letting them have posters and do their flaunting in front of children. Yeah. Why is the ACLU, not the federal government in this case, suing the district attorney uh, to stop it? Yeah, this was last. That was last year. That that happened last year, just after because we had passed that law stating the 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 General Assembly was endeavoring to try to keep drag shows from being performed in public within view of children. So they were. Essentially, they had filed a lawsuit down in Shelby County, which Shelby County then enjoined that law in the Western District. Well, then the issue became, well, if the Western District has enjoined the law, then I guess that means that it's considered unconstitutional all across Tennessee. Well, that was not how Attorney General Scarmetti interpreted it, thank goodness, because he then sent out a memo to all of the other attorney generals in each or all of the other district attorneys in every county letting them know hey i interpret the law as yes they've enjoined it in the in shelby county but that doesn't mean that it can't be enforced in the other 93 counties so the aclu what they have done is they they're just trying to pick off county at a time county at a time and try and and create a momentum so that that law can then be permanently enjoined and never enforced and that's what they're trying. That's what they're still trying to do because we haven't gotten um, it's still being litigated. We still have not gotten a final word from the fifth district on whether or not they determine that law to be unconstitutional or not. Um, the original case essentially is arguing that because it's friend this 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 troop of of drag performers they've indicated that well because their drag performance is part of who they are it's a first amendment issue they should be able to express themselves however what the state is arguing is well that's fine we're not going to have a problem with it so long as you don't in, in so long as there's an age restriction on these shows we would if there was an age restriction on these shows we wouldn't be here so the issue is that they they are claiming they have a constitutional right to perform drag in public in front of children. I mean, literally, yeah. that's what they're arguing. The Church of Satan's trying the same thing, uh, um, using religion as their win. Okay. Um, I could spend hours on a, each one of these topics, but we don't have that much time. Um, the U.S. Department of Justice announced that Tennessee's enforcement of its aggravated prostitution law against people with HIV violates the Americans with Disabilities Act. Very similar to what we just <laughs> talked about. Another one of the 4,000 county strategies, though. They'll use anything they can, including the Disabilities Act, warning that continued enforcement could result in a federal lawsuit. 
Uh, what kind of sick madness is that? Supreme Court just ruled Texas has to take down their barbed wire, so can't enforce their border laws, mm -hmm. and we can't enforce infection infectious diseases being spread knowingly. You know, yeah. sex trafficking is a huge problem in Tennessee. It's this yeah. way everywhere around the world, but all 95 counties, I'm told. And Scarmetti came from Memphis, where he was on the trafficking task force. So he's got yeah. the, the the credibility here and knows what's going on. Um, I think he'd be all over that. So tell us about that story or issue. Um, I, I actually wasn't. I know that I think it was uh, Representative Reagan has a bill this session that's going to be addressing that. Um, but this, I mean, this would just definitely come down to state sovereignty. Um, we should have the ability as a state to determine what is legal and illegal in our state. Um, today, I was, and uh, if we're going to talk about stuff coming up, I'm going to be writing about, um, I think it is HB 1664. I think it's it's one of uh, Representative Lambert's and Senator Johnson's bills that addresses um, an, an enhanced Basically, what they're trying to do is uh, create and make child rape a death penalty uh, type of a case, case. So the possibility right now, it's just life in prison with no possibility for parole. What they'd like to do is for the, the most heinous cases, they would like to have the ability to include the possibility for the death penalty. And this is this is related to that issue because it's a state's rights issue. Uh, Lamberth in his comments today indicated that there is no other state in the nation so far that has passed a law that would um, give an opportunity for a jury to sentence a person to death for child rape. Tennessee would be the first. And there have been uh, Supreme Court cases that have been litigated. So he anticipates that should this bill pass, it will have challenges by folks like the ACLU that will sue the state of Tennessee probably for in, you know, it's, it's, uh, what are they, it's a, it would be a constitutional issue with regard to uh, a punishment that is worse than the crime. I don't know how you could argue that. Um, but, but that is something that's, that's coming ahead. But it's try. All... That's what they do. And then in Washington state, they've gone the exact opposite way where they basically yeah. legalized it. And in California, there's a 10 year window on what is categorized as statutory rape. So if you're 20 and you were with somebody who's 10, that's okay. Over yeah. there. Uh, not yeah. in Tennessee. I agree with that. All right. Let's talk about your most recent story. One of your most recent stories. Chattanooga Mayor Tim Kelly. Uh, no relation to you, right? Uh, Tim Kelly, not related to you? No, no, no my okay. first name is Kelly. My last okay. name's Jackson. <laughs> Jackson, right. Uh, right, of course. Announced uh, the appointment of Celeste Murphy, a 25-year law enforcement veteran, as the city's next police chief. So she's a woman, that's fine. Happens to be a person of color, that's fine too. Uh, Memphis replaced their chief with a black woman too. It was a very bad <laughs> track record from her time in Georgia. And Memphis is the crime capital of the country, so very dangerous stores closing, all the rest. Do you think Chief Kelly will do a good job based on her uh, career record? I don't know I, who she is. I, I want to say that this was probably, I'm not sure how, I mean, I don't, I'll just tell you, uh, Celeste Kelly. I don't, I mean, 
from what I can remember from what I researched, um, this is, and the issue would be a DEI type of a hire. Um, that is what I can remember. So the concern would be that she would not necessarily have the abilities that we would be looking for in a police chief, that essentially that they're checking off a box versus looking at qualities and um, experience that they're looking for in a police chief. So that would be the issue. And that's the issue, you know, of course, across the country is diversity hires because those seem to be causing problems in all kinds of industries, most notably recently in the airline industry, right? Yeah. So um, when they when they went through the, uh, the only reason I even bring this up is when they went through the whole <laughs> defund the police era, uh, Seattle as well, they also had, uh, you could call them diversity hires, you could tell, call them hired on merit, depending on how you feel about their resume, but they fired their female black police chief uh, because of all the things of the summer of love. And it turned out that she was actually very awful at her job, hid text messages, surrendered a precinct yeah. to the, to the rioters and whatnot. And then you have in Nashville, the Metro chief of police gentleman, yeah. um, he Davis. refused SRO yeah. money and yeah. the Atlanta hire down in Memphis, the crime stats are getting worse and worse and worse. And so now Chattanooga where your headquarters are, I know you live in middle Tennessee. I do. Uh, they got a problem over there with crime as well. And then this person comes in. So I guess we just have to watch and see if it was yeah. uh, checking boxes yeah. or actually meritocracy. Well, and you, if you look at, I mean, obviously we've that, I think I, I think I wrote that story about a year ago. And I, if you, if you listen to the reports and you look at the crime statistics, a third of the crime in the state of Tennessee is carried out in Shelby County. So that should give us an indication of how well she must be doing down yeah. there. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, so we hopefully you don't repeat that in Chattanooga or else it is part of the strategy where they weaken the system everywhere and it just gets yeah. you more and more harm. Let's put it yeah. that way. Uh, first, do no harm. Um, okay. So I know Speaker Sexton has threatened to return Fed money for schools yeah. um, and they are right now debating vouchers for all schools. New yeah. litigation introduced in the Tennessee General Assembly endeavors to remove all vestiges of Common Core Yes. from the state's education system. Tell us why Common Core should go and what it will mean for Tennessee schools in the voucher conversation. Well, they have been trying to get rid of Common Core. Uh, I think this started under Governor Haslam's uh, administration. Um, they decided that it will, and, and that was in response to uh, um, Obama and Obama's trying to get Common Core into more schools, Haslam's response was, well, let's, we don't think it's good. Let's get it out. So that started in 14 by 15 and 16 and 17. They finally had made some decisions about how they were going to go about doing that. Uh, they passed a law in 2021 um, about removing Common Core and all vestiges of Common Core. And then they've just, uh, there's a new bill um, this session that essentially is it, it it's going to more extraordinary lengths to try and make sure that all vestiges of Common Core are completely vetted from the system. But based on my research of what I have uh, talking to local educators 
and reading some of the other articles from some of the other publications that have an opposite viewpoint of, of what, what we tend to. Essentially, the issue is that most of the, in fact, all of the large publishers that uh, the school districts here in Tennessee would use, a, a publisher that's big enough to handle Shelby County, Williamson County, uh, uh, Metro Nashville, um, they have Common Core so deeply embedded in their um, materials yep. that basically what they've done is they just remove the advertising, they remove the words Common Core. Common Core aligned, <laughs> and and then what we did was we went to what they're what are called homegrown standards. But the problem is, from what I'm hearing, these homegrown standards really look a lot like Common Core. So while we may not be utilizing materials that are advertised as Common Core, and we're using homegrown standards, according to the educators that I talked to, a lot of the stuff that the kids are still using in school is still Common Core. People forget that Common Core was uh, George Bush Jr.'s uh, yeah. signature uh, legislation, and then Obama yeah. obviously packed it in and they dealt with it uh, and turned it into what it is today, Wit and Wisdom by any other name yeah. is still really bad education. Well, it was it was characterized in one of the articles that I, one of the academic articles that I found as a spectacular flop. So, yeah. I mean. Yeah, the TCAP scores it, will show that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They make really so, good Antifa it, members, know, but really bad students. Yeah. Yeah. But they can still get into Harvard if they just of, cut and paste it. Oh, oh <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's going to take some out of the box um, thinking as far as legislation, because these are publishers, you'd have to switch to mom and pop publishers. And those types of publishing houses can't handle the volume that a state would need. So yeah. I don't, I don't Even know. Penguin Maybe Classics like was Hill. acquired. Yeah. Yeah, or something like Hillsdale, Hillsdale College. Yeah. They offer a free curriculum to whoever wants it. So I would challenge my school district, Williamson County, to engage uh, with Hillsdale. Yeah, I think they've been great. public enemy number one in the state ever since I arrived. But yes. um, okay, yeah. on that note, bill introduced by Tennessee Republicans would enable law enforcement agencies to assign SROs to schools yes. that fail to request one. Does that mean private schools and maybe even homeschools if they decide at some point to crack down? Um, I think there's a separate bill for private schools, um, schools that aren't public schools. This bill is specifically um, about public schools. When I spoke to Representative Warner, um, the issue especially was with like districts like Metro Nashville who were reticent and hesitant to include SROs, especially in, in, in Metro Nashville's never had SROs at the elementary level. Parents were screaming for SROs because the elementary level, those are our most vulnerable children. Uh, Dr. Battle has decided she, it has to be initiated at the school level as the law states right now. What they're trying to do is, um, uh, fix it so that any agent, any law enforcement agency within that jurisdiction where those school districts are, can go ahead and appoint an SRO to those schools without the school engaging uh, in, in, an, in a contract with them and requesting an SRO. So in other words, Dr. Battle wouldn't be the last word on the issue if 
Chief Davis decided he had the resources to do so, if this bill passed, he would have the ability just to go ahead and assign officers to every single elementary school in Metro Nashville. And she wouldn't be able to really do much about it. I'm sure she'd have a bit of a problem with it, but he would have the ability to do that all on his own without needing her permission or any of the principal's permission as it as it happens so that they was did try that with immunization records for homeschool kids even though they don't go to public schools and aren't around yeah. other kids uh, that got tossed out so who knows what they'll try to tack on in the future if they get that kind of power but we'll keep an eye yeah. on that for sure um yeah. next one tennessee legislation with the main purpose of defining and establishing parental rights within the context of government interference which was raised last session and deferred to this year has been pushed another month before consideration why can't they get their heads around this one what's the story there well at the time from what I could tell, and I mean, I don't know if this is, it seems like this session, the way that they're trying to arrange the bills, Chairman Gardenhire, who was the chairman for that particular committee, said that they were trying to group the bills um, by issue. So the issue was that, you know, we were trying to get something passed last session and something got calendared you know, it waited all year and it's basically a parent's rights bill so that there are boundaries on how and in what way schools, any other government entity or agency uh, in the state can um, interact with our kids or make decisions on their behalf. And the frustration here seemed to be that, well, I mean, literally it was, well, we're not going to handle this today. We're going to roll it for two weeks. <laughs> it's yeah. like, wait a minute. We've been waiting since last <laughs> session and you're going to roll it for two more weeks. And and so it's been difficult to follow some of these bills because it seems arbitrary the way that they are. It'll be on the schedule and they'll roll it. They'll roll it for a week. Or they'll roll it for two weeks. So I don't see any rhyme or reason to it, but that's the frustration. We need to have something in place that is definitive that uh, enables parents to know exactly what the boundaries are and that when they're crossed, they feel confident in what they know and understand and they can go in and they can defend their kids and let these agencies know, yeah, you don't have the right to do that. I'm the parent and, and I am the last word. Yeah, Parents' Bill of Rights or something like that. Okay, um, well, let's speed up a little bit because we're running out of time. Two new bills have been filed for the 2024 General Assembly that all but prohibit the ability of certain foreign entities to do business in or with the state of Tennessee. Additionally, foreign agents from certain countries will be required to register with the Attorney General's office. I didn't know they already didn't have to do that. No. At least they do under FARA in the national government, which they ignore. Yeah. Um, tell us... What's going on in Tennessee right now that this would be something that needs to be uh, dealt with? Well, I think this one was a bit dense. Um, not having had the opportunity to speak to Representative Reagan for the motivation for why we would feel like we would need something like this, specifically in the state of Tennessee, um, I want to say it would have probably something to do with the contractors that we hired for the, the big toll road project here in Tennessee, making sure that we're vetting those 
uh, those people who are bidding on those jobs and that we're not contracting out any of the um, work done by someone outside the state or outside the country. Um, I think this is just a bill that basically would force anyone that's in the country for any specific reason, political, doing business uh, from specific countries. And I believe there is a list of those in the article. Um, they define uh, what, I'm looking for that definition, but they define that you know anybody from these um, adversarial countries and they give a list, if you're here and you're doing business and and it's on behalf of that government or that country, you have to go to the AG's office and you have to register. And they need to know that you're here and they need to know exactly what it is that you're doing and why. And they want really it good on the record. They just and discovered in Oregon about 500,000 acres were undisclosed mm -hmm. by a Chinese billionaire who actually owns the timber land and it just was discovered after like 20 years. So that's yeah. good that we get well, disclosure to know who's buying our next door neighbor's house. That would explain the retroactive portion of the bill. So they want to go back to 2014 through 2024. Anybody mm -hmm. who's done business or done anything like that in the state of Tennessee, that all needs to be put on the record. Good. Okay. A bill being proposed this session also will attempt to address the issues that seem to plague the Tennessee General Assembly during the special session this past summer and even somewhat during the regular session of last year. New Tennessee bill aims to remind inferior courts of their constitutional boundaries. Uh-oh, sounds like they were getting a little over their skis. What happened last summer and what has the court been doing legislators don't like? Yeah, um, well, essentially it started in, during the special session. There were some rules implemented specifically for the special session um, that had to do with uh, the protesters, the signs, the you know, because there was a lot of activity during special session. And so it was very disruptive. Um, that was how it was described, of course, by, you know, those trying to do business there. And because of the fact that the inferior courts were essentially created by the General Assembly, um, uh, Representative Bolso felt that it, you know, even though it should be apparent, Representative Bolso felt the need to codify the fact that it's in our constitution and our constitution says that the house and the senate make rules for themselves and the inferior courts do not have any jurisdiction over that subject matter so you know apparently there was a chancery court judge in davidson county that decided to put um, some kind of a stay or uh, one of the rules regarding signs they she said it was a violation of people's civil rights but uh, representative bolso indicated that if they have an issue where their civil rights are being violated you need to go directly to the federal court and there's a process for that davidson county court chancery court being that it's a creation of the general assembly um, would not have the authority to tell the general assembly exactly how they should operate so mm -hmm. he felt mm -hmm. like, you know, we need to put codification <laughs> in the in the in the law so that these you can't chancery court judges um, have a reminder. 
of that. Yeah. Politicians and robes is a very dangerous thing in a yes. constitutional republic. So I'm all for that. Yes. Okay. Um, lightning round now. We'll get to try to get these last few out. Freshman Representative Brian Ritchie proposed a rule change that would require all votes in House committee hearings be a roll call vote instead of the current voice vote, which doesn't keep a record of how representatives vote in a committee hearing. Not one Democrat or Republican on the committee voted in favor of that. They don't like transparency. How does a voice vote hide a lawmaker's vote? And are there any recent memories or is this theoretical? Oh, gosh. How much time do we have? <laughs> I'll give you five minutes um, on that. <laughs> it's first of all, it's already something that's in practice on the Senate side. Um, they they are compelled to um, to do a a roll call vote. It's just part of what they do over there. The voice votes. I, I understand what they were trying to say in that. It, oh, it's perfectly transparent because you can put yourself on the record. But that's that's the problem. What if? What if you decide you don't want to put your your vote on the record? You you're, you're not compelled to in any way, shape, or form. So the issue is that um, I know I have watched uh, committee hearings happen where there's been a voice vote, and it's very difficult to keep track of when the chairman is saying all in favor say aye, and you have a group saying aye, but you can't tell who's saying aye and who's not. You might have a few saying you know no. It's very difficult to keep track, especially if you're just somebody that's a citizen and say you're streaming it online. You're watching the committee hearing. You don't know. You don't know. So it's very transparent to call a roll, call vote and have every single member of that committee just say what their vote is. And then it's on the record and no, there's no mystery to it whatsoever. So the, and the irony of all this is that the vote from the committee on whether or not they would have roll call votes or voice votes going forward was a voice vote. Yes. And they didn't put it online. So you and, couldn't see their yep. lips move or not. So we don't exactly. really know who said no, even though we do know they all said no. And it's exactly. very funny. So there's a little irony there. Exactly. Okay. So. Last one. Um, uh, you mentioned him already. Republican Representative Gino Bolso filed a bill that aimed to create a mechanism that parents can use to compel compliance with Tennessee's Age-Appropriate Materials Act of 2022, not that long ago, without having to withstand extended and costly litigation. GOP yeah. rep from Williamson County, Arizona's County, filed bills that will ensure compliance with Age-Appropriate Materials Act 2022 from your Moms of Liberty days. Uh, think that bill will finally clean up the schools and the libraries? You know, it's hard to say. <laughs> I want to get an update on where we are with the exemption because we were supposed to have passed a law last session that removed the exemption for obscene materials in educational settings. And this is another, to me, this doesn't really help us but I think it will be more helpful once there is a mechanism to sort of enforce, because right now as it is, there's a process, but there's no, um, there's no way for a parent to sort of engage that system and get it going to, to, there's no consequences. Essentially there's no consequences. No if there are, yeah, if there are books there, there's no consequences for keeping them there. Right. And so, so the law passed in 2022, but no enforcement, nobody's getting fined, right. nobody's getting fired, right. nobody's getting disciplined. Right. Just, right. It's okay. So he's, right. his, his new bill might put some teeth into that. Might put a little bit more 
teeth to it um, than what it has. Uh, the original bill from two sessions ago, which was, I think, one of uh, Representative Sapicki's uh, original bill, it was a criminal bill, which is what I felt like it should have stayed. Um, the guy down the street at the 7-Eleven, if he sells my 12-year-old a Playboy, he, he has a criminal consequence for that. So I don't think, honestly, a librarian should be any different if she's checking out a book that has obscene, I mean, legally, according to the state of Tennessee, obscene material in it. She shouldn't get a pass on that just because the federal government gave, you know, the educational setting um, uh, a, a waiver of, of yeah. sorts. Per permission to do it. I mean, the American right. Library right. Association. So is this terrible. has just been, it's been an ongoing fight and it seems like nobody wants to put a librarian in handcuffs. Everybody sort of goes limp whenever you make that suggestion. Yeah. Well, they're banking on that on the other side, but what's exactly. your opinion of the news media in Tennessee? Do you think they represent the voters in their local markets and tell us what you're working on? And then I gotta let you go. Uh, you mean, well, if we're talking about the mainstream media, no, no. Um, I think the vast majority of the state is is maybe not as red, maybe not as conservative, but I would be willing to bet the majority of the state is very much um, a Trump Trump country in Tennessee. Um, it's definitely that's definitely not represented in the Tennessean on any of the mainstream media local affiliates. Um, you know, I'm I'm even really not all that impressed with all of the alternatives that we have here in our area. Um, I feel like we have a lot of. Uh, I'm a, I'm I'm a California native. I know what a rhino looks like. Believe me, I know, and I see a lot of this soft California style republicanism being. Uh, implemented or acted out in our in our own state legislature, and it frustrates me that even some of our local alternative um, news media don't don't call it out. They tend to sort of either ignore it or cover it up, and yeah. and I don't think that helps anybody. I mean, Californians are moving here for a reason, and believe me, it's just going to get bigger. The more of those people that join us here, they're going to see it too. And they're going to be calling it out. And, and the movement is just going to grow. The grassroots populist conservative move, movement is just going to grow and get bigger and bigger. Yeah. And you work for the home of the Rhino Report. So thank you yes, for doing do. that. And tell us tell us any big stories you got coming up and then how people can find you on social media or uh, follow your work. Uh, well, I am, again, like I said, I'm working on this story for tomorrow, um, uh, Representative Lambert's bill for child the child uh rape um that's coming up in the next next day or so and then of course my interview with um ag skermetti will be posted i think wednesday um we kind of only go out so far at a time because right now we're in the middle of general session and man anything can happen like mm -hmm. crazy things happen during general session. So we sort of don't go too far into the future with stuff, but I mean, I'm, I'm on Facebook. I don't have <laughs> a writer's page. I'm just, you know, Kelly M Jackson on Facebook. And I am on um, Twitter at the right side of reality um, on Twitter on X, sorry, on X. Uh, I will post my stuff 
I'm not as good on my socials. I just, I'm so busy. I don't post it uh, as often, but you can always get a hold of me at uh, my email address, which is Kelly at Tennessee Conservative News.com. So awesome. Well, keep doing a great job. You all, you two, you three are really the only conservative voices and daily news out there. So, and yeah. I only do this three days a week. So thank you for we all try. you do. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to have you on again sometime soon. Thank you. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard, dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com I don't Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show. Producer Steve, are you still there? What did you think of our guest, Kelly Jackson? I got that backwards. Kelly Jackson, uh, Miss Jackson, if you're nasty. She loves when I use that Janet Jackson line. <laughs> yeah. What do you think of her? Oh, it's just wonderful to hear somebody who is coming from our side of the, the page who is doing her best to cover what's going on in the general session. And she's right. Anything can change within an within a nanosecond down there. And it's good that they have somebody who's embedded into, I take it they have people that are down there. They're in They're in on some of these sessions. They're recording them. Or do you have um, like a C-SPAN for Tennessee where you can watch legislation live on, on yeah, like video? Yeah, but they, they are very uh, tricky, sneaky with that. Like I was describing with that one bill that was going to, everybody wanted them to start doing roll call votes and they were going to vote on it and then they voted no on it but and it went blank right to do it and they didn't show it yeah yeah like you kind of flipping around on the thing so you never know but anyway moving on 200 years later the monroe doctrine is still the best protector of u.s interest this year marks the 200th anniversary of the monroe doctrine if celebration or even acknowledgement seems muted, that may be because policymakers and the public know little about the principles and grand strategy underlying the doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine was not a blueprint for establishing an international order or even for American involvement throughout the Western Hemisphere. It was an expression of the moral principles and strategic thinking that animated foreign affairs for the first century of our national existence. It is also the blueprint blueprint for returning to a realistic grand strategy that can preserve American liberty from threats foreign and domestic. In his seventh inaugural message to Congress on December 2nd, 1823, 200 years ago, its topic was the collapse of the Spanish Empire and the subsequent rise of independent nations in Latin America. Henry Clay and other leading statesmen's, statesmen saw this as an opportunity to push American-style republicanism abroad. 
Monroe declared a policy of neutrality in the wars between Spain and the newly independent republics of Latin America. He also promised not to interfere with existing European colonies or the affairs of the old world. The strategic principle embedded in the Monroe Doctrine can be traced back to the beginning of the nation, arguing in favor of a firm constitutional union backed by a powerful navy in Federalist Number 11. Alexander Hamilton outlined what could be called a proto-Monroe Doctrine. He writes, the world may politically as well as geographically be divided into four parts, each having a distinct set of interests. In George Washington's Farewell Address, 1796, in relation to the still subsiding war in Europe, my proclamation of the 22nd of April, 1793, is the index of my plan, sanctioned by your approving voice and by that of your representatives in both houses of Congress. The spirit of that measure has continually governed me, uninfluenced by any attempts to deter or divert me from it. After deliberate examination with the aid of the best lights I could obtain, I was well satisfied that our country under all the circumstances of the case, had a right to take and was bound in duty and interest to take a neutral position. Having taken it, I determined as far as should depend upon me to maintain it with moderation, perseverance, and firmness. The United States has the second most active diplomatic post of any country in the world after the People's Republic of China. Now, why am I telling you all this? including 249 bilateral posts, embassies, and consulates in 168 countries, as well as 11, in, 11 permanent missions to international organizations and seven other posts as of 2021. It maintains interest sections in other states' embassies in Afghanistan, Iran, North Korea, and Syria. Hmm. Macroeconomic support, Ukraine, $5.8 billion dollars. Stabilization operations and security sector reform from the Department of State in Israel, $3.3 billion, half that. AIDS, HIV, World, Department of State, $2.197 billion. Um, there's more. Macroeconomic Foundation for Growth, Ukraine, another $1.7 billion. Substitization Operations and Security Sector Reform, Ukraine, Department of State, $1.5 billion. Stabilization Operations and Security Sector Reform in Egypt, $1.1 billion. Multi-Sector Unspecified World, Department of the Treasury, $1 billion. Multi-Sector World, Department of the Treasury, just under a billion, 950000 That is Loan to Clean Technology Fund Deposit Basis. And IAA with USAID, HIV, AIDS, World Department of State, $720 million. Macroeconomic support. Um, Don't forget we have 800 Actually, that was last year. Sorry to interrupt, but that was last year. $5.8 billion for Ukraine for macroeconomic support. And this year, macroeconomic support, Ukraine, $14.4 oh, billion. Dollars. Oh, oh. Okay, Monroe Doctrine, George Washington, stay out of affairs, be neutral. Contributions to the Global Fund, $811 million. So that's shrunk. That's HIV AIDS because obviously macroeconomic support to Ukraine, $14 billion. And cash transfers of government to Jordan, $770 million. And here's infrastructure, Ukraine, $370 million. So you can add that to that $14 million. 0.4 billion 
Ethiopia gets 1.6 billion and Ukraine got 16.4 billion, 10 times. There you go, macroeconomic support versus AIDS. That was so 90s. Uh, as we cross the $34 trillion mark this week, and that means $1 trillion of interest only per year, so there's nothing left for anything, including military. That's pretty scary. By the way, $45 billion in obligations, 9,200 activities. I just told you the top two, and we're in 187 countries except our own border. And United Airlines is hiring based on DEI and has an actual drag queen as CEO. Boeing, too, into DEI, which could be why they can't tighten bolts and doors are falling off. Uh, they had passengers sitting on the tarmac in their planes for seven hours here in Nashville this weekend when the snowstorm hit. Pretty awful. It was actually last weekend. Um, first U.S. moon landing in decades to launch with NASA science human remains on board. So that's good, right? Science and technology. When a rocket makes its inaugural liftoff attempt on Monday, it will carry nothing less than the first lunar lander to launch from the United States since NASA's final Apollo mission in 1972. The stakes are high. The success of the rocket developed by the joint venture of Lockheed Martin and Boeing called United Launch Alliance is crucial to that company's future and its desire to chip away at SpaceX's dominance in the commercial launch industry. While NASA is the primary financial backer of the mission, the space agency is just one customer involved. Also on board, Peregrine will be science experiments and commercial cargo from other nations, including Germany, Mexico, and the United Kingdom. Again, meddling in other people's affairs. Astrobotic partners with German shipping company DHL, for example, to take small mementos to space, including photographs and novels to student work and a piece of Mount Everest. <laughs> Really? Notably, I got the wait till the wait till the punchline. Notably, Peregrine will also carry human remains on behalf of two commercial space burial companies, Elysium Space and Celestis, a move that sparked opposition from Navajo Nation, the largest group of Native Americans in the United States. The group contends that allowing the remains to touch down on the lunar surface would be an affront to many indigenous cultures which regard the moon as sacred. Celestis offered to carry ashes to the moon for prices starting at around $13,000. At NASA, we define diversity as the similarities and differences in the individual and organizational characteristics that shape our workplace. Inclusion is the means by which we optimize the benefits to mission inherent in our diversity. For example, the policies, procedures, and practices that an organization puts in place to create more inclusive work environments. Diversity and inclusion are integral to mission success at NASA. Our commitment to these principles helps us to ensure fairness and equity in decision-making. Diversity and inclusion also drives full engagement and the utilization of the talents, backgrounds, and capabilities of individuals and teams, allowing us to create and maintain a work environment where diverse ideas are highly valued and critical to effective technological solutions. In turn, individuals can reach their potential and maximize their contributions to our strategic goals. Oops. NASA is dealing with new setbacks on its mission back to the moon. Yes. The agency just announced on Tuesday that Artemis II was delayed. NASA is now targeting September 2025 for the mission to send It'll never happen, Steve. Um, we've never been to. Have you ever been to the Smithsonian and seen that tin can? Yes, I have. The first moon, Apollo 11, and the computer models were so basic. Weird we can't go back easy now. 1969 was 55 years ago, and Twitter can process a billion tweets a minute. Find mine. Kick me off, but we can't do that. And it's an election year, and I want to remind everyone, Iowa's done. 
Night is New Hampshire and then Nevada and Super Tuesday. We'll be watching that. But more importantly, we'll be watching the process. Rep. Bill Pascal, Democrat New Jersey, sought to bar... 126 members of Congress under the same theory for challenging election before January 6, 2021. Whoa. Similar le legislation from Rep. Cory Bush, Democrat Missouri, to disqualify members got 63 co-sponsors, all Democrats, including Rep. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Jamal Bowman, Fire Alarm Puller, and Richie Torres, and squad members Ilan Omar of, it says Minnesota, but I think she's Somalia, and Rashida Tlaib of Gaza. When Maine's Secretary of State, Maine Secretary of State, disqualified Trump, three in the state's congressional delegation, Senator Angus King, Independent, and Susan Collins, Republican, and Rep. Jared Golden, Democrat, condemned the decision. That's nice. Colorado, Maine, Washington is looking at taking Trump off the ballot, but they have been overturned. Can't win on ideas in the ballot box, so this is what they do. They try. Keep power by any means necessary. That is why the Supreme Court needs to take up the issue and put this pernicious theory to bed once and for all. Until the court rejects this anti-democratic ploy, activists eager to win elections through the courts will keep using it and it will mastitize throughout our body politique. The Gallup poll released Friday found that only 28% of adults in the U.S. are satisfied with democracy, a record low. That number is down from the prior record 35%. That was measured not long after the January 6, 2021 attacks on the Capitol. Broken down by political party, Democrats were more likely to say they were satisfied than Republicans, 38% to 17% respectively. Independents fall between the two with 27% satisfaction, according to the poll. Satisfaction, however, was decreased by all three groups since the question was asked in 2021. Following the insurrection, 47% of Democrats, 36% of independents, <laughs> and 47% of Republicans said they were satisfied with U.S. democracy per Gallup. The Gallup survey was conducted between December 1 through 20 with a sample of 1,013 adults from all 50 states and Washington, D.C., and has a margin of error of plus or minus 4% at a 95% confidence level. Confidence in the poll, not confidence in Americans, apparently. Stay tuned for my thoughts of the day. Let's just jump into it. Hey, you guys, this is Senator Ted Harvey, chairman of the committee to defeat the president. And I want to encourage you all to continue to watch, continue to listen to the Mill Creek View podcast. It's a great podcast, and you need to give them your support. Thanks. Yeah, my name is Sam Brownback. I'm former ambassador for religious freedom, former senator and governor. Uh, and I really work a lot now on religious freedom. I'm the co-chair of the International Religious Freedom Summit and the chairman of the National Committee for Religious Freedom. And you're listening to Milk Creek View podcast. Thanks for joining us. Late time for my coach of the day. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcast and join the conversation at Milk Creek View on Twitter. And storms make trees take deeper roots. Dolly Parton. The way I see it, if you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain. Find out who you are and do it on purpose. Dolly Parton. If you see someone without a smile today, give them yours. Dolly Parton. If you don't like the road you're walking, start paving another one. We cannot direct the wind, but we can adjust the sails. Don't get so busy making a living that you forget to make a life. I was the first woman to burn my bra. It took the fire department four days to put it out. <laughs> People always ask me how long it takes to do my hair. I don't know. I'm never there. Dolly Parton. 
I am a self-made woman and I have the doctor bills to prove it. Dolly Parton. That's it for this episode. Thank you, Kelly Jackson, Miss Jackson, for keeping journalism fair and balanced in Tennessee. January 19th, 1946, little Dolly Rebecca Parton was born, which led to her album debut in 1967, age 21, with Hello, I'm Dolly. Happy birthday, Mrs. Dolly. Loved you in Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. You are number 11 on Forbes' richest self-made women last year, net worth $444 million. At age 76, the country music icon is showing no signs of slowing down. In the last year, she's had two TV specials, published a novel, and companion album with author James Patterson, a children's book holder, and added fresh lines of branded baked goods and pet products. Coming up, a 30-song rock album out in November. The main source of her wealth is her Tennessee theme park, Don <laughs> Wood, which has benefited from a post-pandemic tourism boom. Nice work for a self-proclaimed backwoods Barbie. That is goodbye for now. I'm your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of MC View. See y'all tomorrow. Peace in our time and glory to God. Let's hear from a not-so-dumb blonde from her debut on the Bobby Lord Show on January 31st, 1967. This song was Dolly's first country hit, reaching number 24 on the charts. You also have recorded another song recently, and, and it's a beautiful song. Why don't you go sing Dumb Blonde? Uh, I mean, no, I mean, I don't Do think what? that. Uh, dumb, uh, no, that's not the way I should put it. Uh, wait a minute now, I'll think of it. Dolly Parton recorded a song called Dumb Blonde. Yeah. She is about to sing it for you. Thank right you, Bobby. Now, Dolly.
Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.